So we are going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which was a teaching Jesus gave during his time here that really explains what the Christian life uh, is supposed to look like. And today we, um, we're going to talk about what Jesus had to say about how his followers are to relate to God in prayer. So I'm in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, where Jesus said this, Whenever you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. Um, So prayer really, in a lot of ways, has kind of become a hot topic in our culture in recent years as there's been uh, just a steady increase in things like meditation and and prayer and and really spiritual experiences. And, And to Jesus, what we can see in his life is that uh, prayer was an absolute necessity. I mean, he, not only was he constantly praying throughout the gospel accounts, but even when you zoom out from this passage, you'll notice that in the verses di- directly prior to this, in verses 1 through 4, Jesus talks about um, engaging with the world and with the needs of the world and meeting those needs. And then he just kind of seamlessly transitions from that topic into prayer. He doesn't say, all right, let's stop talking about that, and now let's talk about prayer. And, and the reason for that is because according to Jesus, really the life that you live and the people that you help, and the impact that you have is directly tied to your prayer life. And so what Jesus does in, in this passage is he gives us uh, a model of prayer, uh, his model of prayer through which we can connect to God. But, but interestingly, before he gives us his model, uh, he gives us two false models that we should avoid at all costs. And so a, a lot of people, you know, I've heard this before I've thought this before, maybe you've heard this or thought this yourself, but a lot of people will say, you know, I tried prayer, it just didn't work for me. I didn't get it, it didn't, it didn't do what I thought it was going to do, it just didn't stick. But I think what Jesus would say to somebody with that mindset is that you may have tried a model of prayer, you just haven't tried his. And so in this passage, Jesus gives us two false models of prayer, and then he gives us his. And so I want to look at these false models, I want to look at his model, and then at the end I want to get really practical. So with that, we're going to get into the first false model of prayer, and we're going to call that the religious model of prayer. This is found in verse 5, where Jesus says, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues, and on the street corners <clears throat> to be seen by people. Now, when you first read that, the impression that it might give you is that Jesus is talking about fanatics because he describes people who not only pray in synagogues, but they're even out there on the street corners. And so that kind of 
you know, brings to mind the picture of somebody who's just walking down a sidewalk and all of a sudden starts screaming out loud. But that's really not what Jesus is talking about here. When Jesus references the street corners, um, he was talking about a town square, the place where the streets would kind of, you know, come together. And so Jesus, in verse 5, is describing people here um, who don't just go to formal worship services, uh, but they also lead in prayer at community, you know, think community, civil, religious events. So the the question is, what exactly is Jesus's issue with this? Uh, And and I'll tell you what it's not. The issue is not that this person has um, an exterior public prayer life. It's that uh, that person does not have, in addition to that, an interior personal prayer life. And that's why in the next verse, verse 6, Jesus says, but when you pray, kind of contrast the way that person lives. And he says, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. So Jesus here is talking about people who have a public prayer life, they just don't have a private one. Now you might be asking yourself, well, why would a person like that pray at all? Uh, And the reason, the reason that people like this pray uh, is basically, according to Jesus' words, is that it helps them fit in and be seen by people. See, the, the religious model uh, is basically where prayer and worship kind of function to simply help you fit into your, your family or your culture. Uh, and, and I guarantee you've seen and heard what this looks like before, you know, because one example of it is when a politician ends their speech by saying, and may God bless us all, even though they don't have any personal, private prayer life with God whatsoever. But it makes the politician feel good, it makes the people listening that day feel good, and, and, but there's no substance to it, there's no depth to it, there's no intimacy to it. Uh, another example of this is the fact that if you ask the average person actually on the planet right now why they subscribe to the, the, the particular religion that they do, whether it's Muslim or uh, Buddhist or Catholic or you know, Baptist, the average person, if asked, would say, well, you know, that's... That's where I, I, that's where I come from. You know, all my family and, and friends, they think that way, they talk that way, they live that way, and, and so that's, that's who I am. And so basically, people who subscribe to this model are just people who, for whom uh, prayer and worship is, uh, you know, it's a cultural thing, and it's not much more than that. So, you know, for instance, if you were raised in a particular kind of church, uh, then, um, that's who your people are, then, you know, you're used to that. That's familiar to you. That's home to you. And so you might go and, and, you know, because it gives you a sense of inner peace. It gives you a sense of, of nostalgia. It makes you feel good. It, it uh, you know, kind of helps you connect to your roots. It's why, you know, so many people go to church on Christmas and Easter, but, but really don't think about it beyond that. And what Jesus would say, and what he's teaching here, is that in that model, you're not really connecting to God. You're just connecting to an environment, right? You might be connecting to, to uh, a sense of tradition. You might be connecting to your roots or to, you know, the general feeling of nostalgia. But whatever you're connecting to, it's not the real God, so how do you know if, if that describes you, it, I think is a question worth asking. And according to Jesus, the telltale sign of it here is that when you go into your, you know, your, 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 your prayer closet, uh, you, you don't have anything to say. Uh, there's, no, there's no real passion to know God. You, know, you, might, you might pray when um, you know, there's a lot of bad things happening in your life or a lot of challenges in your life that might lead to bad things happening in your life. But, but when you remove that pressure, when there's no social pressure when there's no circumstantial pressure, there's no internal drive in you to talk to God, to meet with God, to see God, to know God. That's, that's how you know, according to Jesus, that you're locked into what we're calling the religious model of prayer. 
Uh, but, but not only is that a sign that you're locked into the religious model of prayer, according to Jesus' words here in verse 5, it's also a sign that you're a hypocrite. Uh, now that, to me, is eye-catching. Because when, when, when we think about hypocrites, you know, our, our mind immediately goes to kind of this caricature of an individual who lives this outwardly moral life and is trying to get everybody to believe that they're this moral person. But of course, behind the scenes, they're doing these terrible, terribly, obviously, overtly immoral things. Right, that's our definition of hypocrisy. That's our acid test or litmus test for hypocrisy. But according to Jesus, the acid test that reveals that you're a hypocrite is that you don't have a private prayer life. Now, I don't know where you're coming from when you hear that, but I consider that to be incredibly convicting. Uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon a long time ago called Hypocrites Deficient in the Duty of Prayer. Uh, which was a real crowd pleaser, as I'm sure you can tell from the title. And in his sermon, he says that there's basically one thing that you don't do for show in the Christian life, and that's what Jesus is talking about here, that secret prayer. Everything else you do in the Christian life, uh, you do. Um, people are going to see, or at least they're going to hear about it. But the one thing that you do that's just for God is secret prayer. And so his point was that if in your Christian life you do everything, you observe every spiritual discipline, but you don't privately pray, then basically everything that you're doing is just for show. So that's, that's the religious model of prayer. And after this, Jesus talks about, uh, he, he turns to another group of people, uh, and therefore another false model of prayer. And you read about this in, in verse 7, where Jesus says, and when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters. Now, first off, this word babble is kind of difficult to understand, because not only is it not found anywhere else in the Bible, it's actually not found anywhere else in all of the Greek literature that we've found so far. But what it basically means, it refers to something like a, like a torrent of words kind of, you know, flowing from you. And it has, it has the connotation of, of being frantic, like a frantic torrent of words. And Jesus says not to babble like idolaters. And when Jesus talks about idolaters, I, I think this is really interesting, he uses a word that, that refers to the exact opposite of religious people. So when Jesus talks about idolaters here, other versions will translate it Gentiles or pagans or, or, or other kinds of stuff, but it's a word that basically means uh, the licentious, meaning people that live apart from the law or outside of the law. Uh, it, 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 it's talking about immoral people or non-religious people. And so this is our second false model of prayer. It's what we're going to call the non-religious model of prayer. Now that might sound really strange to you because on the surface that kind of seems like an oxymoron. You know, what, how can there be a non-religious model of prayer? Why is Jesus talking about non-religious prayer here? But, but I, I consider this to be really profound. One of the things that you can pull from Jesus' words here is that there is no such thing as a prayerless heart. That prayer is actually, it's the involuntary reflex of the human heart, meaning uh, whatever you say you believe or think about the universe and its origin and the meaning of life and all that kind of stuff, the fact is that there are times in, in your life and in my life and our lives in which we experience emotions so powerful and experiences so moving that we really can't help but pray. That, that our heart knows, regardless of what our intellect might tell us, and Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, that our, our heart knows, regardless of what our intellect might tell us, that there is a God and we need him. 
And out of that realization, there will be this frantic torrent of words uh, that Jesus describes here. And he says that people who subscribe to this model and this way of relating to God, uh, they think they're going to be heard for their many words. So Robert Wuthnow, um, whose name I find very hard to pronounce, but I did not mispronounce it. His name is Robert Wuthnow, uh, is a teacher at Princeton, and he is one of the world's leading um, sociologists of, uh, of religion. And he wrote a book called After Heaven that's, that's basically a sociological reflection uh, and study of spirituality kind of as it's, it's evolved specifically within the United States. And he said that the older approach to spirituality in the United States is something that he refers to, and, and you'll you know what this means as soon as I describe it, uh, the older approach to spirituality in the United States is something he refers to as the inhabiting model. So the, the inhabiting model is basically marked by people who go to sacred places, you know, think churches, cathedrals, synagogues, whatever it is. Uh, they, they go so, not out of deep personal conviction, but, but primarily out of family tradition. Now that sounds actually a lot like uh, the religious model that Jesus talked about in verse 5. Uh, but he said that, that uh, the newer approach of, to spirituality that's kind of sprung up in, um, in the United States in the last few decades is marked by uh, people who are, are very, very different on the surface. It's, it's, it's marked by people who say they hate religious institutions. Uh, and, and maybe this, this sounds like you, uh, or maybe this sounds like somebody that you know. Um, he, he says that there's been this, this, this kind of new group of people who, who would say they hate religious institutions, um, that really everybody needs to figure out what's right and wrong for him or herself. And so what they're, they're essentially doing is they're kind of putting together their own religion, their own belief system, but if asked, they would say, no, no, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. And so with that, they're, they're still very much into things like prayer. They might not go to church, uh, but they're very much into you know, traditionally, classically uh, spiritual exercises and disciplines like meditation and, and prayer and all those kinds of things. And, and this model uh, he calls the, the seeking model of spirituality. And it's called the seeking model of spirituality because that's what it's about. It's about always seeking. It's about uh, you know, a journey. And you never really arrive. You never really have the market cornered on all truth. It's just you take another step. You see things from a different angle. Uh, you, know, you turn another page in the story. But it, 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 it's, it's a journey. Uh, and he points out that the, the older model, the inhabiting model, where that was really kind of culture-driven, the newer model, the, the seeking model, it's very technique-driven. And new spirituality, the newer um, spirituality, is, is absolutely very technique-driven. You know, it's all about visualization techniques, relaxation techniques, you know, breathing uh, techniques that are designed to kind of, you know, fill you with some kind of inner, inner peace and calm and tranquility and maybe help you more connect to the present and not so be, you know, in the, in the past or future. But, but anyway, new spirituality is extremely technique-oriented. But in the end... Its, its primary goal is not really to, to, to reach God necessarily either. It's more about using the divine or a spiritual experience uh, to try to get the resources that I need to realize my goals. You know, whether that's acceptance of myself or healing from past trauma or inner peace, confidence, um, stillness, whatever that is. And so Robert Wuthnow makes this really interesting um, observation and he says that in the end these two models as different as they appear they're not really all that different from one another 
and he explains that the old religious approach basically baptized the social order. It kind of put a spiritual bow on a lot of what was wrong with society, and so it was very you know, superficial for doing so. But he says the newer model is really just a way of baptizing my goals in life. And at the end of, of everything, it's, uh, Robert Wuthnow says, you know, that's just as superficial as the old approach because it's not, about, it, it's not really about submitting to something and being changed. It's about trying to use the divine or use, you know, different spiritual experiences to try to get to where I want to be in life. And really that's the model Jesus is talking about here um, in verse 7. And Jesus says people who subscribe to this model think they're going to be heard for their many words. Uh, but, but he says, no. And so according to Jesus here, um, both the religious and the non-religious models, are, um, they're false models. And after showing us these two false models, Jesus then uh, gives us his model, something that we call um, the Lord's Prayer. Um, however, in, in the Lord's Prayer, what Jesus is doing is he's basically showing us what the primary purpose of prayer is. But before, and, and, and the answer to that question is, is really going to be our main idea during our time together this morning. But before I give that to you, I, j- I just want to point something else, uh, point something out that, that I found interesting as I was kind of spending time in this passage. It's really interesting to me that Jesus, instead of just giving the right model, his model of prayer and relating to God, it's interesting that he um, gave us two false models first. And I was asking myself, why would Jesus do that? Why not just get directly to the point? But the reason I'm convinced that Jesus did that uh, was to show us what those two models are fundamentally lacking and kind of set the ball on the, on the tee uh, in showing us what only his model of, of prayer and relating to God can give us. And so with that, I want to get to what, what is really our main idea today, and it's the purpose of prayer, and it's this. The purpose of prayer is to experience intimacy with God and to develop trust in God. The purpose of prayer, foundationally, is to experience intimacy with God and to develop trust in God. And when you think back at the two models of, of prayer, the two false models of prayer that Jesus just dissected before giving us his own, what you realize is that both the, the religious and the non-religious models fail to, to respectively offer us these two things. What I mean is the religious model of prayer will never allow you to experience intimacy with God. And so in verse 6, when Jesus says, when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you, Jesus is speaking specifically to religious people there, people who are locked into that religious way of relating to God, and he's calling them to a kind of intimacy that their model of relating to God is never going to give them. Uh, and, and, and with that, the non-religious model, what that's never going to allow you to do is to develop real trust in God. And that's why in, in verse 8, when Jesus says, your father knows the things you need before you even ask him, that's Jesus speaking directly to non-religious people locked into a non-religious way of relating to God. And he's calling them to a kind of trust in God that their model of prayer is never going to give him. So the purpose of prayer, according to Jesus here, and you're going to see it in just a minute, is to experience intimacy with God and then to develop trust in God. So let, let's, let's look through this prayer. And I want to specifically start here um, in, in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where Jesus says this, Therefore, you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven. So, so here's, here's what's interesting. What I just read to you is, is 50% of the Lord's Prayer. That's the first half that I just read to you. And all through that, it has absolutely nothing to do with my needs. There's no daily bread. There's no dealing with my guilt or my anger toward others or getting help for the challenges that I face. There's nothing like that. So what am I doing in the, in the first half, the first 50% of the Lord's Prayer? It's, it's actually really simple. I'm focusing on and being amazed by God. And so what Jesus is, is, is getting us to see here is that before we ask for anything, the primary goal of prayer, the first thing that we should be after is God himself. So I, I, I taught, touched on this on the front end, but, but when people say, you know, I tried prayer, it didn't work for me, and I gave up on it. When, when people say things like that, they, they nearly always chase that with um, an example of, of something that they wanted that they didn't get. Or, or uh, you know, just a, a a way that they wanted something to turn out in life and it didn't work out that way even after I prayed about it and so I guess prayer doesn't work. But when you understand Jesus' model of prayer, you understand that's not the primary purpose of prayer. What, what Jesus is, is showing us here is that prayer needs to be approached in such a way that before we ask for anything else, we ask for him. And so before any of us gets to say prayer doesn't work for me, the question that we have to ask ourselves is did I persistently uh, time after time, over and over, if necessary, hour after hour, did I go to God saying, God, I need to have an encounter with you. I need you in my life. I need to know more than, than just facts about you. I need to know you personally. Because when we approach prayer that way, it will never disappoint us. The, the, the place in, in Luke's gospel where the Lord's Prayer is introduced is, is Luke chapter 11. But just prior to that, at the very end of Luke chapter 10, uh, there's, a, there's a real brief story about two sisters named Martha and Mary. And uh, Martha is, um, she's running all around her house. She's, she's exhausted. She's busy. She's distracted. And, uh, and then in the midst of that, Mary's doing absolutely nothing. And, um, and Martha kind of calls out to Jesus and said, hey, can you talk to her? But Jesus, surprisingly, he winds up rebuking Martha, the one who's working, rather than Mary, the one who wasn't. And what he tells Martha is he, he, he basically points her to her sister Mary and he tells Martha that Mary has found the one thing necessary. Now that alone should, should cause you and I uh, to sit up and take notice because that's Jesus saying that there's only one thing in this life that's necessary. There's one thing that you and I need. Uh, and it's the one thing that Mary found that Martha couldn't. So the question is, what is that one thing? And earlier in the story... What we, what we read is that Mary, in the midst of all of, of Martha's work and exhaustion and busyness, which is maybe something that a lot of us can relate to right now, Martha was simply seated at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. So, so what, what that's a picture of, that's Mary being completely engrossed in Jesus, hanging on every word, determined to simply experience what it was like to be in the presence of the man who was God. That's the one thing Mary found that Martha could not. Now, commentators will say that, that Jesus, it's, it's evident from the gospel accounts that Jesus had an, uh, uh, an amazing grasp on the Psalms, as often as he quoted them. Um, and he, he had a good enough grasp on the Psalms to the point that, it's, uh, that it's, it's almost certain that when Jesus talked to Martha this way about the one thing Mary had found, um, there's almost no way that he wasn't thinking about Psalm chapter uh, 27, verse 4, uh, where King David says something that, that's a, it's a very famous place in the psalm. Psalm 27, 4, King David says, I've asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, 
to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Now, when you read through the Psalms, it's apparent David was a guy who basically lived his life from one crisis to, to another. He was all, his, it just seemed like his life was always falling apart. His family was constantly uh, you know, riddled with dysfunction. Um, I mean, he could put most of us to shame, whatever we think of dysfunction. You know, David probably had you beat. Uh, he, he, always, he was always running for his life. People were always after him. He was a king. He was a general. People were constantly trying to undermine him. Uh, or kill him altogether. And so he had a lot of pressure and a lot of problems. But what he's saying in Psalm 27, he's saying there's really just one thing I need. And kind of amazingly, it's not success, it's not protection, it's not safety, it's not that people would stop trying to kill me all the time. He, what he's saying in Psalm 27, he knew that if his soul could just see the beauty of God, if he could just have an encounter with God, if he could get to the point in his life where, where he didn't just know facts about God from you know, stories his parents had told him as a kid, but he could actually know God personally, he could have an intimate experience with his creator, David knew if he could get there, that nothing would be able to overwhelm him any longer. Now, that is precisely what Jesus was, was, was saying to Martha, and it's what, through the Lord's Prayer, it's what he's saying to us. That's the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer. You, you were to go after him in order to get a sense of, of both his holiness and his fatherly love on our hearts, to, have an, to experience intimacy with him. And I don't have to tell you, that is wildly different than the religious approach. But right after this, Jesus then says something that really challenges you know, the new spirituality, uh, that, that questions authority and, and says, you know, everybody's got to figure things out for, for him or herself and doesn't really believe in a God that could really... Um, you know, contradict you or speak into your life or challenge you, kind of challenging the new spirituality, Jesus says that the second purpose of prayer is to develop trust in God to the point that you're really willing to let go the reins of your own life and give them to him. Because right after you move through the intimacy of our Father in heaven, you then get to your kingdom come, your will be done. And so Jesus is saying that before you and I get to, you know, the things that, before we start asking for the things that we want, uh, we have to go through this. We have to go through your kingdom come, your will be done. So we all have a tendency in prayer to kind of fast forward right to our daily bread, you know, because we think, you know, I have a lot of needs. I got a lot of problems. I got a lot of stress. I got a lot of pressure, and I know how my life is supposed to go. And out of that posture of the heart, what winds up happen, happening is this, um, you know, this, this frantic torrent of words kind of pours forth from us. And, and, and you know, you, you can probably relate to this. I know I can. It sounds like, God, you have to come through here. You have to make this work. You have to, you have to get me through this. You have to, I don't ask you for a lot, but I need this because I don't see another way other than, than, than this. So you, you have to do this for me. And really that, 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 that posture, the heart, that mindset, that, that style of prayer that style of relating to God, that in so many ways is the babbling that Jesus was talking about earlier in this passage. And, and here's, here's, here's the reality. If you and I pray this way, uh, if when we pray we go right to our daily bread, to our prayer list, our, shop, our spiritual shopping list to God without, getting, without taking the time to teach ourselves your kingdom come, your will be done, then what will happen is not only is your prayer not going to make you feel better, your, your time in prayer is going to make you feel worse 
because you're not really praying. You're just worrying in God's direction, and you're rehearsing all the things that terrify you the most in life. And if you wind up after spending time with God, uh, you're going to feel like your life is heavier. You're going to be more discouraged than ever. And if you've ever experienced that, which I have, when we experience that, what Jesus would say to us is that you went too fast. You went to your wants and your needs and how you think your life should run, but you didn't take the time to take yourself out of the place of God. See, on, on autopilot, I don't care you know, who's tuning into this, but one of the things that we all have in common is that in, on autopilot, the, the default of the human heart is to go through life saying, my kingdom come and my will be done. My wants, my needs, my goals, my ambitions, my life, my kingdom. Right? And, 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 and really, whether or not we want to admit this, that in so many ways is the root cause of all of our problems. Right? I've referenced this before as, a, as an example, but in, in, Joseph, or in Genesis chapter 50, where we read what is the, the final chapter of, of uh, the story of Joseph. And, and you probably remember from the story of Joseph in the Old Testament that his brother sold him into slavery and uh, you know, they basically stole his life from him. And, and against all odds, despite what his brothers did to him, Joseph rises up to a position of power. And he's in a position where he can hurt his brothers the way that they hurt him. And uh, their father dies. And so their brothers knew, that, well, this is it for them. If Joseph decides to, to, to do to us what we did to him, then, then this is it. So they, they send this message to Joseph. And uh, they basically say, please don't hurt us. And in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph gets them together and he says something that I think is so profound. Let me just pause here. So often when we talk about Joseph's story, you know, the, 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 the famous you know, life verse that people pull out of his, his story is, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You know, that's a, that's a really encouraging verse that can really provide us with a lot of peace and strength. But, but just before Joseph said that, he asks this question to his brothers that I, th- I don't think we, we, we talk enough about, I don't think we think enough about. Um, and, and I think it is incredibly profound. Just before he says, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good, Joseph gets his brothers together, and he, he simply asks them a rhetorical question, and the question is, am I in the place of God? Maybe you've read the story of Joseph before and wondered, how does a guy go through all of that and have the power to hurt people back the way they hurt him and, and, and not do it? And the answer is the source of all of Joseph's ability to forgive, the source of all of Joseph's inner peace, the source of all of Joseph's personal growth that allowed him to not be defined by the things that other people had done to him, even when those things really stole the life that he could have otherwise lived out from under him. The source of it all was that Joseph knew that was the only question worth asking. Am I in the place of God? Who who gets God's place in my life? Is it going to be God or me? Joseph knew that that was the question to ask, and he knew the answer to that question. He knew, no, I'm not in the place of God. And, and, and when you and I experience the opposite of what Joseph experienced, meaning when we are eaten alive by our own fear and anxiety, whether or not we want to face this, the root cause of that at the end of the day is that we believe we know how our lives should go. In other words, we've assumed the place of God in our own lives. When we are eaten alive by our own resentfulness, not just hurt by others, but resentful toward others for the ways that they've hurt us, that has nothing to do, at the end of the day, at the, at the foundation of it all, that has nothing to do with other people or what they've done to us. It has everything to do with the fact that we are so certain we know what those people deserve and we are furious that they haven't gotten theirs yet. And what Joseph would say, what he is saying, 
in Genesis 50, saying, I got myself out of the place of God. I got myself out of the place of God. If I hadn't done that, I'd still be angry. I would have died a, an angry, bitter, spiteful, shriveled shell of what I could have otherwise been in God, but I got myself out of the place of God. I got all of that out of my own life because I got out of God's place in my own life. So the second part of Jesus' model of prayer here, before, again, before we get to our daily bread, before we get to our checklist, before we get to asking for the things that we need, Jesus is teaching us that we need to learn to develop trust in him, to hand over control of our own life to him. We've got to get to the point where we're able to say, God, the most important thing for me is to know that you're God and I'm not. And the primary source of pain in my life and problems in my life is that I forget that. I feel so guilty. I, feel, I, feel, I am so overcome by my guilt so often because I feel like I need to live up and I've forgotten that you've done that for me. I feel so angry because I am so certain that I know what the people who have hurt me deserve. I, I, I'm, I'm so anxious about what's ahead of me because I'm so certain that I know how my life is supposed to go. And Joseph would say to any of us tuning in right now who, are, who, who, who that sounds like you, if you relate to any of that, what Joseph would say to us, he, he would say, I let go of all that. It took a really long time. It was a painful process. Sometimes it felt like I was taking one step forward and two, te- two steps back. It wasn't a straight line. It wasn't linear. And I wouldn't want to do it again. But I'm so thankful that God taught me to let go of all of that. I learned to let God have his place in my life. And when I did, when I learned that, I was free, freer than I've ever been. In a very real sense, all of our psychological problems are essentially theological problems. In other words, our psychology, in I think more ways than we understand, our psychology is affected by and even determined by our theology, what we believe about God. And if we want to heal our hearts theologically, theologically, the, really the only way to do that that God has given us, maybe not the only way, but, but certainly the best and the primary way to do that is through prayer. It's by looking at God's holiness, at God's heavenliness, at God's omnipotence, at his authority, at his kingship, and teaching ourselves to say, you're God, and it's time that I get out of your rightful place in my life because I am woefully underqualified for the position. In other words, to borrow words from Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. And when we learn to say that and as we learn to say that and all that that means, we begin to move through life free in a way that nothing can, can overcome or overwhelm us. So at this point, I think the question is, well, how, how can, if, if this is all about, you know, experiencing intimacy with God and developing trust in God, how can I know God this intimately and trust in this implicitly. Because that's a challenge for both religious and non-religious people. Religious people have, have the hardest time knowing, knowing God intimately. They have the hardest time approaching God with that kind of vulnerability because they're always worried, what if I'm not good enough? What if he rejects me? What if he finds fault in my life and I don't measure up? But then non-religious people, you know, th- their question is, well, how do I really trust him to the point that I let go of control of my own life? How do I know that he loves me? How do I know that he cares for me? How do I know that he's not holding out on me? How, do, how can I know him this intimately and trust him this implicitly? And the answer to that question is we have to understand how radically Jesus revolutionizes our relationship with God. See, at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us that prayer, that relating to God through prayer, it doesn't begin with our King or our Lord, even though God is both of those things. Jesus teaches us in his model of prayer 
that prayer begins with our Father. And the only way that we're going to experience intimacy with God, the only way that we're going to develop, that we're going to develop trust in God is by knowing that in God we have a Father. And the only reason that we can know God that way is because of what Jesus has gone through us. I learned this a couple years ago from another pastor, and it really moved me when I first understood it, when I, when I was first taught this. But every single, every single prayer recorded by Jesus in the gospel accounts shows us that Jesus always prayed the same way. He always called God his Father in every single recorded prayer in the gospel accounts except one. The one time that Jesus prayed but didn't call God his Father was when he was on the cross at Calvary and he simply said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason that Jesus did not call God his Father on that one occasion is because on that one occasion, in every sense of the word, Jesus was being thrown out of God's family. Because what was happening in that moment, and I want to make this personal for you, whoever you are, what was happening in that moment is Jesus had taken all of your sin on himself. And God was treating Jesus, his true son, as though your sin was his sin. And the only reason, the only reason that you and I can come to God as a father is because Jesus went through that for us. What the gospel shows us is that one time Jesus was forsaken so that we could always be remembered. We could always be accepted. One time Jesus was forgotten so that we would never leave God's mind, so that he would never forget about us. He would always remember us. One time the true child of God was kicked out of the family of God so that you could be brought in, so that you could have your, your heavenly father, so that you could relate to God that way. And the more that that becomes real to you, the more that you understand what Jesus has made available for you in your relationship with God, really that's the beginning of life-giving, life-altering prayer. Now ordinarily, this is exactly where I would end this teaching, but, but it just it dawned on me, this is a conviction of mine as I put this teaching together, that, that prayer, is, is, um, prayer is the one thing that the disciples had to come to Jesus and say, hey, how do we do this? And the Lord's Prayer itself is very practical. So I didn't I didn't want to just leave you today talking about how important prayer is or different elements of prayer and, and, and the purpose of it. Um, I, I wanted to speak to the person who's wondering, this is awesome, I want to do this, where do I start? And so if you're listening to me and, and, and you know, you, you've, you've heard this teaching and now you're wondering, now, okay, I'm sold on prayer. I want to have this, this life-changing relationship with God. I know that prayer is the catalyst he's given us to do this. I just don't know even, I don't even know where to begin. If that's you, then, then, then this last part is, is really, I... I I put this together with you in mind. This is real short, but, but I want to give you an exercise. And the exercise is to just take a few minutes uh, a day in prayer every day for the next seven days. That's all I'm asking. Just take maybe 10, maybe 15 minutes a day for the next seven days. But before you begin praying, the first thing you need to do is listen. Just listen. And, and really, that's so much of the secret of the Lord's Prayer. What Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer, just with the flow of it, is that before we ask for anything, the first half of, of, of that prayer is just, it's dwelling on and listening to who he is. And out of that, then we respond. 
uh, you know, like I think about it this way, and this, this just made a lot of sense to me. If, if, if you had an appointment with somebody that you really look up to, who's really influential and famous and you admired, you know, for me, that'd be like Tim Keller. If I could have a, a one hour long meeting with Tim Keller, it would be absolutely ludicrous for me to hop into his office and unpack my briefcase and talk to him about everything I think for 60 minutes. And then the moment that that timer goes off, shut my briefcase and say, hey, I hope you got all that. I'm out of here. I would want to hear from him. I want to know, like, I, I just want to get to know him. I want, to, I want him to speak into my life and, and, and tell me about his life and, and all that kind of stuff, but we forget that with God. So the first part is just listening to him. Now, you might be asking, well, how do I listen to God? But thankfully, he has, he has given us written communication of himself. So here's what you can do for the next seven days, and this is actually what I do. Take a psalm. You can literally start in, in uh, you know, Psalm chapter 1. And as you read it, for the first part of your time with God, just ask two questions as you read the text. First off, God, what are you showing me about you? Secondly, what are you showing me about me? And as you take your time reading through the text, you know, verse by verse, line by line, word by word, just ask those two questions. And, and really treat that time as though you are meeting with God and you're listening to him tell you about himself and tell you about yourself. And when you have those two questions answered, then just pray those things back to God. You know, t- t- talk to him about what you adore about him, that that particular passage shows you about him. Thank him for who he is and what he's done. And then confess all the things that that text shows you about your life, the things that are in your life that, that need to go, or the things that are not yet in your life that you know you, you, God wants you to develop, you want you to develop, you know you need his help developing. Bring all of that to him. And after that, you can get to your prayer list. And before that, you can do your, your, your pure Bible study. But I think the mistake that so many of us make is that in our time with God, we either do just Bible study or we do just our prayer list, our wants, our needs, the people in our lives that need help. And, and when we do that, we miss out on, on, on what Jesus says we need so deeply, which is experiencing intimacy with God and developing trust in God. So that's my, my challenge to you. If you're wondering where to start with this thing called prayer, Take a psalm every morning for the next seven days. Take 10, 15 minutes. Let it speak to you. Listen to what it has to say. And then say that back to your Father in heaven. And and I'll make you a promise. If that doesn't work, if that doesn't change things for you, then you can have all the money back that you paid for this teaching. All right? Is that fair? That's it. And that's all.